Well, hello, friends. Welcome to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm going to be your host today. If this is your first time listening, I would love to chat with you. So send me an email at hello at capitalcitychristian.org. We're continuing our series today called Life, A Hero's Story. We split the series up into a couple different acts because we think that every hero story has echoes of our own story. The first act is about rescue. Most of the time when we put ourselves in a hero story, we're the ones doing the rescuing. But this series has us as the ones being rescued. Now, our rescue has a path that leads directly to the cross. The cross is how God shows us the depravity and the danger of our sin, how much he loves us anyway, and is the glimmer of our rescue. Our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison, is ready with today's message, so let's get right to it. Really, really glad you're here. Now, if you're new to Capital City, there's some Connect cards in the back of the seat in front of you. If you don't mind picking that out and filling it out for us, we'll send you some information or contact you with some information about Capital City. And I want to remind you again that in the back of the room right over there, you'll see a room that has prayer over the top. It's a prayer room. One of our elders is in there, and he's going to be praying for you guys during this service, during the sermon. And if at any time you just need to go pray with somebody, talk to somebody, just slip into that prayer room back there, and uh, I'd be glad to pray with you. Okay, guys, occasionally uh, I start off a sermon with a parental warning. Most of our sermons are rated G, some PG, but the real Jesus story has some extremely raw edges, and I don't intend to pull punches this morning. And so some of you parents might consider some of the pictures that are going to be on screen and even some of the words that I use. You might rate them at least a PG-13. So we have some great kids programs going on right now. And I'm going to pray in a moment while everybody's eyes are closed. If you want to slip out, drop a kid off. This is a perfect time to do so. And if you're not sure where to take them, we've got guest services folks out in the foyer and they'll help you get your kids where they need to go. So let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, the story that we're going to look at is the most important story ever for anybody. And I pray that the power of this scene will grip our souls. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Now guys, we kicked off kind of a three-month series a couple of weeks ago, we're calling it Life, a Hero's Story. And it's really in three parts. It's about life as it was meant to be. My life, your life as it was meant to be. We're caught up in a hero's story. This month is about the rescue, the hero's rescue. Next month is about the rescued life. What does it mean to live like you have been rescued? And then November, we're going to focus on our role as rescuers. If you hang around with a hero you're probably going to end up doing some things that are heroic yourself. Now, we've started by unpacking three things that we think make a hero a hero. Number one is sometimes a hero sees what others can't see. That was two weeks ago. Number two, sometimes a hero feels what others don't feel or they just find intolerable what others of us have learned to tolerate. That was last week. And then the hero does what heroes do no matter what the cost. And that's today. Now, I've been setting it up by giving you a 
two parts of a three-part hero story. I've told you the first two parts, the first two weeks. I'm going to tell you the rest of the story this morning. Twelve years ago, the British Medical Journal <clears throat> did a poll trying to identify the most important medical milestones of the past 200 years. Third place went to anesthesia. Huge milestone. Second place to antibiotics. They estimate that penicillin alone has saved nearly 200 million lives. Incredible. Another huge milestone. First place was surprising. Sanitation. They believe that clean water and toilets have done more for our health than antibiotics, vaccines, um, anesthesia, x-rays, you name it. Just clean water and toilets have made us healthier. But here's the deal. Even though the sanitary revolution started back in the 1800s, according to the World Health Organization, 2.1 billion people still lack safe drinking water in their homes and more than twice as many lack safe sanitation. And when people lack toilets, they just do their business outside, sometimes in common areas. The negative impact on health is devastating. Diarrhea, cholera, dysentery, hepatitis, typhoid, hookworm, roundworm, schistosomiasis, polio. And if you look at the numbers that suffer and die, it will blow your mind. So several international organizations decided they try to do something about the problem. They started these water projects. They started building latrines. One group was called WaterAid. Their mission is to change lives through three things, water, toilets, and hygiene. They funded a bunch of latrines for Bangladesh. Then they invited an expert by the name of Dr. Kamal Kar to go to Bangladesh and investigate, evaluate their work. And when he got there, he found great latrines, well-built. Some of the people actually used them. But, Dr. Carr said, I'd go to the edges of the village, and every village still had poop all around it, everywhere. Wherever he went, he'd have to avoid stepping in it. Even with the latrines, they still did their business in the common areas or just wherever. And then as soon as the rainy season would come, the rain would disperse that poop throughout the village so they were living in it and it was devastating their health. You see, the experts had thought it was a hardware problem. If you can build enough latrines, we're going to solve the problem. What they found was that the problem went way deeper than that. They were trying to fix a problem the people didn't realize they had. People still didn't understand what a mess they were making. They didn't understand how dangerous their mess was. And how can you fix a problem when people don't admit they have one? Or they don't know how big it is, even when it's killing them. So, Dr. Carr and his team developed a strategy they called Community-Led Total Sanitation, CLTS. It's now used in about 60 countries around our world. And they launched these interventions. Here's how one of these interventions might go. A facilitator is going to go into a village and he's going to say, do you mind if I look around and just ask some questions? Of course. And he attracts a small crowd and they start what they call a transect walk. They just go from one side of the village to the other. And while they're walking, the facilitator asks people like this, where do you poop? That's not how they ask it. And they don't ask it like, where do you guys go number two? Or where do you guys defecate? They don't ask questions like that. They look for the rudest, crudest term they can find. Where do you all, you fill in the blank. 
Now, I'm going to say poop here, but that's not the word they choose to use. And when the villagers show him, he just kind of lingers there a bit. People are embarrassed. They want to move on. But he starts asking them questions. Any of you guys poop here today? Who's poop sis? A few hands go up, maybe some giggles. The stench is powerful. Some of the people are starting to cover their noses. They're eager to move on. Facilitator just hangs there asking more questions. Why is this one a little more yellow? Why is this one a little bit more brown? Why are there so many flies? Are the flies here often? Yeah. Maybe there's a chicken that's pecking at it because they do that. And he'll say, do you eat that kind of chicken? Well, yeah. They're a little bit embarrassed. But he just keeps asking questions. He doesn't give any opinions, no advice, no lectures. He just asks questions. And then he leads the crowd of people to a large public space. And he asks them to draw with their fingers a map of their village in the dirt. And they mark the landmarks, the school, the church, the stream. And then he asks them to mark where their homes are with either stones or leaves. So they've got this map of the village laying out in front of them. When the facilitator, when the map is done, the facilitator pulls out a bag of chalk, probably yellow chalk. And he asks the kids to start sprinkling chalk on the common areas where people poop. And he says, if that's an area that's used a lot, put more chalk on it. So the kids start pouring on the chalk, and the people are kind of laugh, uh, laughing a little bit, but they're embarrassed. The kids are having a great time. And then he asks something like this. Now, what if it's an emergency? Like maybe it's raining, or maybe you've got diarrhea or something like that. And again, people are giggling, and they begin scattering more chalk, usually now right around their homes. And pretty soon when they're looking at their village there in the dirt, they find out that their whole village is covered with yellow chalk. And now the people are unsettled. They're anxious. They're disgusted. They're embarrassed. And they're not sure what it all means. So the facilitator asks for a glass of water. He gets a glass of water and he hands it to one of the ladies. Would you drink this? Well, yeah. Hands it to some others. Would you drink this? Yeah. And then he pulls a hair from his head. I couldn't be one of those facilitators, maybe from my beard. Pulls a hair from his head. He says, can you all see this clearly? Well, not really clearly, but we can see it. And then he walks over to a pile of poop and dips the hair. And then he comes back and he swirls the hair into the water. And then he hands the glass to one of the people and says, will you drink it now? No. Hands it to a couple others. Will any of you drink it now? No. Of course, they all refuse. Why? Because it has poop in it. Well, now the facilitator's puzzled. Huh. How many legs does a fly have? Six. And they're all serrated, right? So do you think flies pick up more poop or less poop than my hair? And there's hesitation as they say, well, probably more. Well, do you ever see flies around your food? When you see the flies on your food, do you throw it out? No. Then what are you eating? And the tension becomes nearly unbearable because finally they begin to see it. They've been eating each other's poop for years. 
They're embarrassed. They're agitated. They're determined. We can't keep doing this. This is madness. How do we fix it? Facilitate, facilitator doesn't answer yet. He says, well, you know your village better than I do. You can do what you want. You can keep on pooping the way you've always pooped if you want and eating each other's poop. They're determined now. They will not live one more day like that if they can help it. The strategy is brutal and the strategy is effective. They tell us that in Bangladesh, the rate of open defecation has declined from 34% to 1%. I'm hoping they send a team to San Francisco. You see, they couldn't see the truth. They couldn't see the truth until they were made to trip over it. Guys, in so many ways, that is our story. Shouldn't be too hard to picture in your imagination. We have these common areas where we cluster to sin, right? But pretty much in reality, we sin everywhere. And I'm not the only one who steps in my sin. My sin messes you up and your sin messes me up and we've been eating each other's sin for millennia. And maybe not always physically, but in every other way that really matters, it's killing us. We go through life oblivious, pooping wherever and eating each other's poop. Filthy, dangerous, disgusting. Is that too strong? (laughs) And we need some spiritual CLTS. We need a hero. We need someone who sees our sin for what it really is, who recognizes the depravity of it and the danger that it causes that we have come to accept as normal. We need someone who not only sees the problem, but who cares, who finds intolerable what we have learned to tolerate. We need someone who not only sees sin for what it is and recognizes the danger it puts us in, but who's willing to do whatever is necessary to rescue us. And what God does staggers the imagination. Best we can tell, crucifixion was invented by the Persians about 500 years before Jesus was born. People of the ancient world used crucifixion to execute their enemies for nearly a thousand years till it was outlawed by the emperor Constantine. It was the most horrendous, despicable, disgusting way that we have ever devised to kill a man. In fact, the Romans wouldn't even ordinarily use it on citizens at all. They'd only crucify the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low. The Jews felt exactly the same way about it. In fact, the Old Testament says anyone who was hung on a tree is cursed by God. And they considered crucifixion being hung on a tree, so they considered Jesus cursed by God. Right? Even though we all knew how terrible it was, whether or not we just saw it as a necessary evil or whether we were just cruel. We crucified thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. It was terrible and it was common. In fact, at times they would actually crucify thousands of people on a single day. After the Romans put down a a slavery revolt led by Spartacus, they ordered 6,000 of his followers crucified. They lined them up along a major highway covering about 120 miles 
be like driving from Frankfurt to the West Virginia border, passing across on the shoulder of the road every 100 feet. 50 bodies a mile for 120 miles. They knew crucifixion. And even though crucifixion was outlawed by Constantine for its horror, men kept on doing it and men still do it. Nazis crucified Jews. Khmer Rouge crucified their opponents in Cambodia. Muslims are still crucifying Christians today in Africa. I know we hang beautiful crosses on our walls and we wear beautiful crosses as necklaces and we sing catchy songs about the cross, but to really understand the cross is to be horrified, sickened, and disgusted. In fact, they actually invented a word to try to capture its horror. Excrucis, out of the cross, excruciating, agonizing, intense, suffering, torturous pain. It appears they usually crucified men. They'd often strip the man naked. You see, the cross was supposed to be a humiliation as well. Often the crosses were quite short, barely lifting the victim off the ground. You see, they liked their victims to be at eye level, so those who wanted to mock them and spit on them and make sport of them could look them right in their eyes. And crucifixions would draw out the worst of the worst, who would mock them and spit on them and make sport of them. It does appear that occasionally they crucified women as well. In fact, I read one time that they would take the women and they would turn them around to face the cross because even those as barbarous as the Romans struggled to watch women in such humiliating and excruciating pain. But I've actually never read any solid evidence that they would actually turn the ladies around. A lot of things could cause a man to die on a cross. Dehydration, blood loss, heart failure, shock. Apparently the most common cause was asphyxiation, believe it or not cross made it hard for a man to breathe. Guys who study this stuff, and they study this stuff in great deal, tell us that by hanging on your arms like that over time, it makes it very difficult to inhale and nearly impossible to exhale. A crucified man would have to pull himself up with his arms, pulling against the nails that had been driven through his wrist, or pushing himself up by the, against the nails that had been driven through his feet, and he had to do that painful stuff just to breathe weaker they got, the more they'd slump and slouch, and eventually they'd suffocate, choking on their own blood and vomit. Dying could take a while. Crucifixions were not intended to be quick death. They were designed to torture a man for hours or even days. Excruciating pain, baking in the sun during the night or day, freezing at night, you're stripped naked or close to it, Unable to fend off the insects and the birds. Unable to hide your pee or your poop. It was the worst way they could think of to kill a man. Sometimes they would whip a man first. They did that to Jesus. Call it a whipping is too tame. Scourging is a better word. Scourgings were so bad that some men didn't even make it to the cross. One of the soldiers would take a whip, not a whip with a single strap, but multiple straps of leather, and into these straps of leather they would weave pieces of metal, bone, stone, or glass. They'd tie the victim's hand to a post and start beating his neck, his shoulders, his back, his buttocks, and his legs. Cords of the whip would wrap around his sides. At first they'd bruise, then they'd cut, then they'd tear. 
If you saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ, they tried to make it real. Jesus' muscles would have been shredded, quite possibly his bones exposed. He would have been bleeding profusely. His body may have gone into shock, which means his blood pressure would have plummeted. It's hard to guess even how much blood Jesus would have lost. Blood from the scourging, blood from pounding the crown of thorns into his head, blood from the nails. They likely wouldn't have hit arteries when they pounded nails into his hands and feet. They likely just hit nerves. But cumulatively, the blood loss would have been massive and we've only got about a gallon and a half of blood in us. So this bloodied, disfigured, appalling man was given a cross to carry to the place of execution. It may have been a new cross, more likely a recycled one, since wood was way more precious back then. So it could have been stained with the blood and the feces and the urine of others, like us, like ours. Probably weighed about 100 pounds, 100 pounds of rough timber with sharp splinters and rough edges laid across a back that had been torn open and was still raw. And although Jesus was relatively young and strong and fit, after a sleepless night, after a flogging, they'd kill a man. He wasn't physically strong enough to get the job done, so they had another man carry the cross for him, a guy named Simon of Cyrene. When they got to the place called Golgotha, place of the skull, simply says, all it says, they crucified him. That's all it says, they crucified him. They didn't have to say more. They didn't want to say more. Because everybody knew exactly what that meant. They probably stripped Jesus naked because it wasn't just about killing a man, it was about humiliating him. Then they would have driven spikes not really nails, spikes. Probably between the two bones right below your wrist because if you put a spike right here and you try to hang a man on it, it'll actually pull out through the fingers. Then they would have driven spikes either through the top or the sides of his feet, literally nailing Jesus to a cross. It would have been common for a crucified man to lose complete control of his bodily functions cry, he would sweat profusely, he would bleed, he'd urinate, he'd defecate with no way to clean himself of any of these things. Those are the sights and the sounds and the smells of a cross. And the crowds would gather, especially the lowest of the low. And some would get drunk and they'd laugh and they'd mock and they'd spit and they'd throw stuff at him. And his family and friends, if they dared be there, would be crying, but the others would be mocking and taunting because that's what people do. And most crucified men would cuss back, maybe spit back if they could. Not Jesus. He didn't declare war on them. He could have. Wouldn't that have been a sight? He didn't cuss anybody out, probably should have. Didn't call on God for justice. (laughs) Thank God. Instead, he said things like this, Father, forgive them because they're absolutely clueless. What adds to our discomfort is they didn't try to hide any of this stuff. They try to crucify a man in the most visible public place possible. It'd be like going down to Kroger and out in the parking lot, you see this crowd gathering and you go to check it out and they're crucifying a guy. The cruelest of the cruel would just hang on, laugh, mock, party, 
Maybe they'd go home. If the guy was still alive, they'd come back the next day to do the same. Finally, after a day or two or three, he'd be dead. And ordinarily, they'd just let him hang there, letting the dogs and the bugs and the birds have at it for a while. And then they would take the body and throw it into their version of a dumpster. That's how they treated most crucified men back then. So Jesus hung on a cross for about six hours. He'd struggle harder and harder and harder for every breath. He'd push against the nails in his feet. He'd pull against the nails in his wrist to raise up and breathe. And every single breath would cause shockwaves of pain through his body. Every twist against the nails in his wrist would be agonizing. Every movement of his mutilated back against the cross would be excruciating. Eventually, he'd be exhausted. Finally, the Bible says, Jesus breathed his last, and he died. It was finished. So Jesus died, crucified and died. Sad story, isn't it? Not necessarily earth-shaking. Thousands had been crucified before. Thousands would be crucified after. The fact that Jesus died a terrible death was terrible, not earth-shaking. His was unusual. Usually they crucified the worst of the worst, the most heinous criminals, the worst of traitors. Jesus was instead notoriously good. What makes his crucifixion even more tragic, but still not earth-shaking, make a great movie, great hero story. A good man dies without compromise. Life-altering, perhaps, for those who hung on his every word back then, but... Should it be life-altering for us? But, you see, centuries before Jesus, God had planted this notion. He'd planted a seed that had become pretty much commonplace by the time of Jesus. In their law, in their law, in their covenant with God, this is how things worked. Book of Hebrews puts it like this. The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Can't be forgiven. So they would shed blood. They'd shed a lot of it. They shed the blood of sheep, the blood of goats, blood of birds, blood of cattle. They'd sacrifice an animal to God as a means of acquiring forgiveness for their sins. That was normal back then. And then along comes Jesus. And Jesus says... I'll be the sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins. Huh? I'm here to be a sacrifice. I'm here to give my life as a ransom for many. For every single one of you, he says. And at his last supper that we're going to celebrate in a little bit, Jesus took a cup. He gave thanks to God, which when you think about it, is absolutely amazing that he gave thanks to God for that cup. Because he understood what was in that cup. And then he said, all of you, all of you drink from this cup because what's in this cup is my blood, which is going to be poured out as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, 
I will be your sacrifice. My blood will cover your sins. I am here to create a new covenant between God and man with my blood. So drink my blood, he says. How crazy is that? How absurd and vulgar and disgusting is that? But it's even worse than that, horrifically worse. Human sacrifice? Human sacrifice? There was human sacrifice in that world, but Jews found the whole idea abominable. It was detestable. It was unconscionable. Human sacrifice was one of the worst sins in God's law. Jesus says he's going to establish a new covenant with God based on a human sacrifice. Is that what Jesus was trying to do? Actually, no. See, that's the part we don't get. This is the part you have to see. The crucifixion of Jesus was not a man shedding his blood to cover the sins of those he loved. If that's all it was, it would be a noble death, but no more. One of 10,000 noble deaths. This was not a human sacrifice. Listen, guys. The one who created the heavens and the earth was on that cross. The one who caused the darkness to come over that earth that day. The one whose last breath stirred an earthquake that tore the earth open. The one whose last breath tore the massive veil in the temple from top to bottom. The one whose last breath caused others who were dead to rise from their graves. The Son of God. The Son of God was on that cross. The Son of God was the one who died. This was not the execution of a good man. This was God taking our place. If all you see in the cross is the death of a great man, you miss it. But we recoil. Gods don't die. Gods can't die. In fact, that's one of the biggest pieces of being God, isn't it? Yeah. But he did because God can do that if he wants to. Steve Smith, our worship pastor, had this pick up as a background a couple weeks ago. It actually was up there today. It annoyed me at first when I looked at the picture. It was too clean. Jesus looks too good, too strong, too ripped, too alive. I mean, a crucified man looks like that guy on the right. And then it dawned on me. What if you really do understand, what if you really do get it, that the one who was on the cross is not just a man, it's God. <laughs> we didn't kill God. We can't. Cross can't hold Jesus there. Those nails aren't holding him there. The spear that they plunged into his side didn't kill him. That's the Son of God giving his life for you and for me. And once we get that, if we finally get that, that moment of absolute clarity, you finally get it, you finally understand, that's God telling us what he thinks of our sin. Killing us. It's that bad, it's that dangerous. And that's God telling us what he thinks of us. 
loves us anyway, go figure, to go to a cross for us. And that's God providing us with a way out. That scene is the rescue. That's the rescue. See, God could have just washed his hands of us. Or God could have scolded us or lectured us or reprimanded us. But for some reason, he loves us. His messy, screwed up, dirty kids. But how could God get us to understand that our sin, our poop is killing us? How can you get us to see that our sin is stealing the life that he wants us to live, both now and forever? How could God get us to see sin for what it is, to stop tolerating it anymore? And how could God get us to accept his way out? He gave us a scene that we, we've got a trip over. God dying for our sin because my sin will kill me without his help. And God did what he did to make that vividly clear. So does that mean that there was no God for three days? No. Physical body of Jesus, physical body that Jesus used was dead. God's still at work. What the cross meant is that the penalty for our sin was paid and our sin has been forever removed if we will bend our knees to Jesus. One more piece. How do you know that really was God on the cross? How do you know? Because three days later he walked out of that tomb. Because, guys, God can do that, too. See, guys, we think of death as the end. Death is not the end. He proved that when he walked out of the tomb. Guys, Jesus didn't just die for you. He rose to give you life because he is God. And God will not let death win.